You guys hear me? All right. Stand up real quick. I'm so sorry. We're going to read the scriptures. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. I know the tendency is to talk and then to sit, and I apologize. But think about it this way. You just got a little bit extra of a calorie burn, so you're welcome. Uh, my name's Brooke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad uh, to be with you. A couple things I want you to know. First, we are in the study of Galatians. So if you're a person that has a digital Bible or you have a physical Bible, Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 is where we're going to be landing today. Um, and because we are a family, we're a church family, I asked my little girl, could you come read this for us, please? I think it'd be better if you read it. This is Scarlett. Everyone say hi. So she's going to read this. Do you want to do it here or there? Which is your preference? You want to try here? Okay. Scar, take it. You have to hold it. I'm yeah. not going to do it. Okay. <laughs> what am I saying? That is, as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the uh, <laughs> elemental. Elemental, yeah. <laughs> Elemental spiritual forces forces of the world, but when when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those un, under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God went. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father, so you are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are his child, God made you also an heir. Thank you. Hold on. Can you, I mean, I didn't, I, will you pray? Can you pray for us? Yeah. Pray for the team. <laughs> Lord, um, I pray that this teaching would um, speak to all of us in great ways and that um, that all of us would continue to walk with you and um, that um, you would speak to us in this teaching. Amen. Amen, girl. Thank you. <laughs> On the spot. Thank you. Grab a seat, everybody. The fact is, I didn't want to talk as long, so I asked her to share the load, and she, I'm just going to, do you want to just read my notes? It might go better. I guarantee it would. Um, I, want to, I want to take you to a place really quick. One spring morning, uh, the year was 2012. Try to remember where you were at that point, uh, 2012. Some of you were five years old. Some of you were still in high school. Uh, some of you were in college. But 2012, Elizabeth and I were uh, just days away from giving birth to little Scarlett, who was just reading to us. Uh, she's our second child and our first daughter. And I remember vividly all the different feelings that I had that were emerging with the arrival of this new little life. Uh, my first thought was, wow, I'm going to be a dad to a little girl, which was both intimidating and beautiful. And questions that went through my mind were questions like, uh, will she like me? Uh, will she think I'm handsome when she's older? <laughs> really deep stuff, right? Will she laugh at my terrible dad jokes or will she just laugh out of kindness like her sweet mom? <laughs> will she love Jesus? Will I be the kind of dad that helps her see the difference between a grown boy who claims to be a man or will she see and know what a real man is because of her dad's example? All of these questions, plus many more, were flooding my mind as I was recalling these memories and concerns. But the truth is that I was just really happy to have a little girl. I was just happy to be a dad to my sweet little girl. 
And to this day, she is my little girl who I'm proud of. She's still the most cuddly one in the family. She's creative, incredibly articulate and kind. But this story actually isn't about Scarlett. No, not at all, actually. Uh, because at the very same time that I was experiencing the birth of my first daughter at the beginning of April, at the very same time, there was a little girl being brought home to a new family that was actually not her own at this point. At this point in this little girl's story, she was three years old, and this little girl's first three years had been extremely tough, hard, painful, full of neglect. She at this point was at an orphanage in Uganda with tons of aunties trying to give her what she missed out in the first few years of her sweet life. And at the same time, there was a family that had been praying about adopting a little girl from Uganda. They almost felt called to God, from God to adopt this little one. And the very same week that my sweet Scarlett came into the world, my niece Sunday Love Comer was brought home uh, to her new family in Portland. She all of a sudden had two brothers, Jude and Moses. She had a new mom, Tammy, and a new father, John Mark. And her life, its trajectory, her opportunities, her relationships had been permanently altered because of the family that she was now grafted into. She started out on one path, but because a family came in by the moving of the Spirit and adopted her, for her now, the sky is the limit. Uh, today, the text before us that we just read uh, has major implications for you and I. And the truth is, these implications are there, whether you fully understand them and are aware of them or not. And so today, I just want to look at three quick things. And I say quick to just give your mind the idea that this is going to be quick. This is not going to be quick. But to give you three quick things, uh, we're going to look at three quick things. What does the biblical adoption in God's family look like? Why does adoption into his family matter? And what does that mean for all of us? All right, so that's where we're going what is biblical adoption, why it matters, and what this means. So what is biblical adoption in God's family? Uh, everyone knows on a surface level, to adopt someone is to make that person a legal son or daughter, right? We know that. Uh, most of us know that. Adoption is one of the metaphors used in the Bible to explain how Christians, uh, you and I, are brought into the family of God, right? You've read that before. And we just read in Galatians 4, Jesus came that we might receive adoption to sonship, uh, and he was successful. We know that to be true. So Romans 8 says, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his children, as another reference. The Bible, uh, as you know, also uses another metaphor. And that's the metaphor of being born again into God's family, which at first glance could seem to be at odds with this concept of adoption. Because normally in a family, right, either a person is adopted or they are born into the family. Not usually both. But in these metaphors, God is trying to explain the same thing. We're a part of his family. Whether you're born into it or you're adopted into it, you are a part of God's family. Now, to understand for you and I why this is a really big deal, <clears throat> and it is, excuse me, is you have to understand the context. You have to understand what's actually going on. So let me give you a little context of the Jewish world and what was actually happening during this particular letter. Uh, adoption actually was not common in the Jewish world at all. A person's standing was completely based on their birth, so it really mattered what kind of family you were born into because that actually would spell out your trajectory. Have you ever read that part of the Old Testament where if a man died, his brother was supposed to marry the widow? Weird, right? Just think of your sister-in-law really quick. Now stop. It's just weird. Like, there's no way I can slice this where I feel comfortable with this reality, but it's in the Bible, and it's a real thing. 
And it's something called a leveret marriage. Now, a leveret marriage literally means a marriage to a brother-in-law. Real complicated. Uh, the word leveret actually comes from the Latin word levere, and it means simply a husband's brother. And in ancient times, if a man died without a child, that was a big deal. And it was common in that time, in this practice, that a man's unmarried brother would marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the man that was deceased. So a widow would marry a brother-in-law, and the first son produced in that union would be considered, by their standards, the legal descendant of her dead husband. It was a way to ensure that there was actual heirs to his throne, so to speak. So we see a couple examples in the Bible of this. You have Genesis 38. There's this story of Tamar and Onan. Uh, that's an example of a leveret marriage. Another one is actually <clears throat> Ruth and Boaz. Now, in the Roman world, let's, so we have the Jewish context, right? Now, in the Roman world, adoption was actually a very significant common practice. So you have the Jewish world. It's like, no, we don't adopt. You, you are born into this. But in the Roman world, it was very different. Now, for you and I today, if we want to pass on our belongings when we die, what do we do? We write a what? A will. We write a will, and we leave our wealth and our property to anybody we want. Male or female, we leave it to anybody. But in the Roman world, with only fewest exceptions, a man had to pass his wealth to one of his sons. Now, if a man had no sons, or he felt his sons were incapable of managing his wealth, or unworthy of it, he would literally adopt someone who would be a worthy son. Talk about rejection. Talk about father wounds, right? Son, I really don't think you can handle as much as I give you. So I'm going to adopt somebody else. You know, right? Like so terrible. You can imagine how hurtful that is. Now, these adoptions were not actually infant adoptions as is common today. Most of the time when you adopt a child, they're younger. Now, uh, older boys and adult men were actually the ones that were usually adopted. And now, in some cases, the adoptee might even be older than the man that was adopting him. Weird. Now, when the adoption was legally approved, the adoptee would have all of his debts canceled and he would receive a new name. Uh, he would be the legal son of his adoptive father and entitled to all the rights and benefits that a son would in his family. And a father could actually disown his natural-born son in the Roman world, but in the Roman world, adoption was irreversible, which is very interesting that Jesus uses this word, adoption. Now, to illustrate, anyone remember that real classic movie, Ben-Hur? Anybody remember this movie? So Charlton Heston, what a great film. Uh, it, this movie based on a book which is called Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. Now, in this movie, to illustrate my point, Ben-Hur is a Jew, and he's been imprisoned on this Roman galley ship. If you remember, the only scene I ever remember is him in some, like, rowboat. And, like, that whole song, row, row, row your boat. Yeah, that's the visual every time I get of just Charlton Heston beat up, and he's rowing. So he's in this Roman galley ship. And he's a rower. And all of a sudden, a battle breaks out at sea. And when the ship sinks, Ben-Hur escapes. And he saves the life of this Roman commander named Arius. And if you remember the story, Arius, he only, his son, his only son, had been killed. And in the end, he ultimately, this guy Arius, adopts Ben-Hur, who is, ends up being pardoned for his supposed crimes. But what he also does in the movie, if you remember, is he gives him a new, new name. He gives him a new name, and that new name is Young Arius. And all of a sudden, he has all the rights of inheritance because he's been adopted into this guy's family. In the scene where the adoption is actually announced in the movie, Arius takes off his ancestral signet ring, which is a big deal at the time, and he gives it to Young Arius. And then Young Arius, Ben-Hur, says that he's received a new life, a new home, a new father. 
Now, if you remember, Paul is writing to a Roman audience. The, this metaphor of adoption would absolutely have been clear to them. They would have understood this metaphor super clearly. Now, in this passage that we read today, we see that Christians, you and I, are born enslaved, but Jesus buys us out of slavery. And we're adopted by the Father, and we're given this spirit, and we're now heirs. And that happens when you and I come to faith, when we trust Christ. Our debts are canceled. We're given a new name and all of our rights, which we'll get into. Now we have God's rights, and we are now his heirs, which is interesting. One important difference, really quick to make clear, and then we'll move on to some things to help you mentally shift real quick. One difference between Roman adoption and Christians is that we are not adopted because God thinks we'll make worthy heirs. God adopts people who are completely unworthy. If, this, if you're an amen person, this is the time to say that. Amen. This is, a, this is a really important truth. Because he adopts us on the basis of his grace. So, Christians have been born into God's family, using a Jewish metaphor. And we've also been adopted into God's family, using a Roman metaphor. The end result is the same. We are forever a part of God's family. So a question that must be looming around, because I know it was for me, is why does this actually matter? Why, does, why do we need this? Romans chapter 8, if you have a Bible, turn there. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. We're going to look at three quick verses. Why does this actually matter to you and to me? Verse uh, 14 of Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you'll live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought you out about, excuse me, your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, as you see in this passage, there's two different spirits. There's two different mindsets that we can have in our approach to God. And, and Paul, again, in this letter, writes that out. We can approach God as slaves in bondage, or we can approach him as adopted children. Uh, as you already picked up, the Bible presents a really high view of adoption and uses the parallel in our relationship with God. So I want to give you these two views really quick to understand better how we often move through the world knowingly or unknowingly. Are you okay to go on this journey with me? We're going anyway, so this is where we go. So if the first, number one, the first, a spirit of slavery. The spirit of slavery views God as a slave owner, and we are essentially his trembling subjects. Uh, in our time, a spirit of slavery is often manifested in legalistic religion. That's how it usually manifests today. Many cults and even some Christian denominations put such an emphasis on rule-keeping that they instill this fear and a sense of dread in members. Ever been a part of that? That thinking that just like, pulls you down. In the spirit of slavery mindset, in that specific mindset, God is presented as this taskmaster who is never quite satisfied with anything we do. He's always saying, you know, there's a good amount of room for improvement in your whole life. Nothing's good enough. The bar's always just a bit too high. So people often in those moments find religious activities to keep themselves busy, almost in hope that we can get God to accept us for our efforts. Like if we can just work hard enough and do more. Now here's the truth. You can go to church, you can read the scriptures, you can cling uh, to God, and you can still be living in a spirit of slavery often never realizing that freedom that is yours in the spirit of adoption. 
Paul later in this letter, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he wrote something really clear. He said, uh, Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ sets us free. So stand firm then, and this part right here, really important, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. How often do we like pull things back on ourselves that God's like, you don't have to take it. I've got this one. I'll take this one for the team. And you're like, no, but I feel better. I feel like I need to shame myself because that's the way of redemption. It's not. It's, it's, the, it's the yoke of slavery as we see. In, starting, in startling contrast um, to the spirit of slavery is the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit of God brings us into his family. So first, that's the spirit of slavery. Second, the spirit of adoption. Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invited all of us in the Sermon on the Mount Mount, to address God as our Father. He said, opening line, our Father. God explained that his desire was to treat you and I as a loving Father does. And we are his sons and his daughters. God has made this spiritual adoption possible for us through Jesus. So as we trust him, God adopts us into his eternal family. We know that. And then all of a sudden, we are heirs with Jesus. Co-heirs or joint heirs, as the scriptures say, with Jesus. Now, the difference between slaves and sons and daughters is, is actually very vast. And there's a vast difference between the way sons serve their fathers and the way slaves serve their masters. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, slaves often perform duties. Sons perform acts of love. Slaves dutifully obey, sons and daughters gladly obey. Slaves are motivated by fear of punishment, sons and daughters are motivated by love and relationship. Slaves ask, what's required? Sons and daughters ask, what else can I do for you? The spirit of adoption changes us from fearful slaves to joyful sons and daughters. Your relationship is not, please, God, it's rather, oh, I can't wait to do this with you. I can't wait to live with you. I can't wait to do life with you, God. We can boldly come before the throne of grace as cherished cherished children run to a father in time of trouble. Now, because of this spirit, everyone awake still? Yeah? Okay, I'm just seeing either people are sleeping or they're really enjoying being calm. So we'll just all be calm together. Uh, Just being calm, that's what it is. Uh, Because of the spirit of adoption, We can enjoy serving God without fear of obligation. This is a relationship. Relationships really are are hard and very challenging when you're um, in many ways obligated to always be there. There's a part of you that wants, needs to want to be in that relationship. Now, something, faithfulness, that's a big part of a relationship. But oftentimes, as in the example of marriage, you don't get married because you don't like the person. You don't get married because you despise that person. You actually very much like that person when you get married. Things happen, life's, life gets hard, you might not have good communication, different things like that. But we are adopted into God's family, and we are in relationship with him. He's not a taskmaster, he's a father, and it's different. Now, question for you. We'll give you all a mental break really quick. What if you know this, right? We know this in our, our mind, so to speak. But what if you don't really know it? Meaning that you heard of this idea of adoption into God's family, you like the idea, you believe it, but you're not experiencing it. Now, as I've mentioned in other times, uh, this can be very confusing, even mentally, uh, this can happen. 
And it usually when we believe two different things or we live in one way and believe another, uh, something can happen even in our physical biology, in our mind. It's called cognitive dissonance. And that idea is when, uh, if you forget what it is, it's a psychological term that refers to the mental conflict that occurs in you and I when our behaviors and our beliefs don't align. It may also happen when a person holds two beliefs that contradict one another. We get messed up even on a very biological level. Now, uh, cognitive dissonance can cause feelings of unease, um, tension, and people attempt to relieve this discomfort in a few different ways. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, they explain things away. You have a friend that does that, like reality staring them in the face, but they're explaining this really clear reality away. They reject new information that comes into their existing beliefs. They're shut off from learning more. So in the example of today, knowing that you are adopted into the family of God and experiencing it are very different things. Wouldn't you agree? Knowing it and living it is different. So what does that mean for you and I? What does that actually mean? And there's a few ways that we could tackle this part. I could just give you a long list of things that might make you feel better about your current reality. I could give you a lot of Bible verses that just help you feel good. Now, that is going to be a part of this because the Bible does help us feel good. But I'd rather uh, tackle this in, in a more effective way, in my opinion. And I want to do that through four different scenes of adoption in the Scripture. I want to look at four scenes of adoption that we see in Scripture and four lessons that we can draw from them. Are we okay with that? Four lessons. Okay, here we go. Four scenes and four lessons uh, to grasp how deep and how wide and how long and how beautiful the Father's love is for you and me. So the first scene that we have is Moses and Pharaoh's daughter. If you grew up in Sunday school, you saw this or you have read the Bible at all, you know this story, a very popularized story. If you remember, I'll just catch you up. Pharaoh decrees that all Jewish babies must be drowned in the Nile River. Gnarly. Uh, Moses' mother created a rescue plan for her son. Isn't it amazing how moms do that? I don't know if, you, if you've experienced that in your own life, but moms are so good at being like, let's just re, let's retool here. Let's figure this problem out. Let's make it happen. Praise for some moms. Anybody? Yes? Praise for the moms. Anybody? Yeah. No one really likes their mom, I'm learning today. Uh, <laughs> or we're too lazy to care. Okay, so let's keep moving. Uh, so here's what's going on. The mom creates this rescue plan. It's beautiful. She sent him down the river in this basket, which she made. No big deal. Etsy shop. Any ideas? Uh, she's hoping that the Egyptian authorities wouldn't find out. And in this dramatic plot twist, Moses floated up to Pharaoh's daughter. And she, at first look, was just completely consumed with him. She just loved this little baby right at first. Now, Pharaoh's daughter's willingness to accept this Jewish baby as her son, quite literally, this adoption, it quite literally changed the course of history. Not only was Moses' life spared, as we all know, by being taken in, but God used him, specifically him and his story, to rescue all the enslaved Israelites from Egyptian power. Powerful story, powerful scene. So the first thing that this means for you and I is when we are adopted into God's family first, you are given a whole new life. New friends, new family, new places. Your life now has adventure woven into it. Can I ask you a question? What are your plans? What are the plans for your life? May I humbly suggest to you, and, and I receive this myself, gods are better. What are your dreams for your life? Again, I would say gods are better. 
What are your relational goals? Gods are better. What's your purpose in life? Again, humbly, I agree and would absolutely submit God has a better plan than you. What your life was because you've been adopted into God's family, you sitting here today, you are now welcomed into a whole new way of being and doing that leads to your flourishing. Now, I was uh, hesitant to share this next verse, and the reason is because most mothers and grandmothers have this designed in some way hanging on their wall if they know Jesus, or they have it embroidered on a pillow, or it's like they're saying, and they've taken it over. But it's a really great biblical text, and I love it, even if it's been overused in decor throughout the mid-80s, 90s, and 2000s. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then, this is the cool part, you'll call on me. And you're going to come and you're going to pray to me. And this is the best part, God says to us. He's going to listen to us. He's going to listen to your prayers. If you ever feel like you shouting into the air and praying to God, or quietly sitting, mumbling a prayer under your breath, is wasteful or useless, you are dead wrong. God doesn't work the way we do. May I just encourage you and remind you, God's listening. He cares for his children. When his kids pray, he listens. In this idea of adoption, God is our father. So that this, this lie, I just want to identify a lie that I see in our culture, in Christian culture, but in culture in general about this idea of God. In, in adoption, God is our Father. So this lie that God is about to pull the rug out from under you to teach you a lesson at every turn is just simply not true. It's not rooted in reality. Often our lack of faith or understanding is what brings us to this deep place of misunderstanding what God has for us. Life is hard. Like God was really clear. He's like, in this life, you're gonna have trouble. And then we have trouble and we're so surprised, aren't we? We're like, what is going on? This is so surprising. God, are you teaching me another lesson? No, this is, part of the, this is part of the story, friends. This is part of the thing. This is the thing you signed up for. Maybe you didn't know that, but now you're, you're here. You're signed up for it. When we do that, we're viewing God as a slave owner, not a loving father. God is not in this to just, yeah, some, some kids screaming up there. <laughs> no. Oh, well, it's probably one of my kids, so we're okay. Um, in that view, God is not out to find where you're messed up and then pounce you when you're down. Friends, that is a lie from the enemy, and I just want to say it so clearly so we can be all on the same page. God loves you. He is your father. He has good for you. Life is hard. We make poor choices. There's the will of the enemy. There's our will. There's God's will. They're all at play, and if you're confused, so am I. But let me just explain to you. You can move through the world and look at God as a slave owner who's trying to oppress you or a father who is loving you and trying to bring you up. And your view of that changes how you move through the world. But there is one caveat, and it's called obedience. I talk to many people who are struggling and frustrated that God's not doing for them what they think they are owed, when in reality, God has been very clear. Deuteronomy 28, if you turn there really quick, if not, it's on the screen. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 says this, if you listen obediently, there's the word, obediently to the voice of God, your God, and this is to us, and heartily obey all his commandments that I command you today, God, your God, will place you high, high above all the nations of the world. 
All these blessings are going to come down on you and they're going to spread out beyond you because you responded or obeyed to the voice of God, your God. God's blessing inside the city, God's blessing in the country, God's blessing on your children. All of this sounds good. Anyone? Like, this sounds really good. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd, the the lambs of your flocks. That doesn't apply to all of us, but maybe some in the room. God's blessing, check this out, on your basket and bread bowl. If you're a person who's like making homemade sourdough, it's about to get better through obedience. It's getting better. God's blessing in your coming and God's blessing in your going out. He gives us a whole new life. But the one extremely important detail for you and I to remember is that obedience matters. That's just some of the good stuff. There's 40 verses after that in Deuteronomy 28 that is is what life looks like when you decide to not obey and not walk in God's commands. Living your life in a way that is formed around the way of Jesus doesn't mean that you're living perfectly, but it does mean that you are living your life purposefully. We are in God's family. We have a whole new life, but he does call us to obedience, to his way. And it's for our good. You see what happens when we, that's only half the stuff. I didn't even get into the whole list. Now, I don't want to get too far off course here, but that word perfect uh, often messes people up, doesn't it? Because it implies that we should never, ever sin. But the big secret, we do. We sinned yesterday. Good chances you sinned last week. Good chances you've already sinned or are going to sin today and potentially into tomorrow. Now, that's not something we're going to try to do, but it is a reality of our nature. Would we all agree? To better understand what God calls us to in this new life, I just want to take one moment to look clearly at what this life really looks like and clear up a couple pieces of confusion. First, uh, there are two classical concepts of perfection. One is a Greek ideal and the other is a Hebrew ideal. Now, in the Greek ideal, to be perfect is to have no deficiencies, no faults, and no flaws. Doesn't that sound great? Not real, but like, doesn't that sound great? Uh, Perfection to the Greek mind meant to measure up to some ideal standard to be completely whole, true, and good, and beautiful. Basically, to be perfect in the Greek mindset is to never sin. Now, the Hebrew ideal of perfection is quite different. In this mindset, uh, in in this mindset of a Hebrew mindset, it's to, to be perfect simply means to walk with God despite our flaws. Perfection here means being in the divine presence in spite of the fact that we are not perfectly whole, good, or true, or as perfect as you and I want to be. Now, I know I was raised with the concept of holiness that is very much shaped by this Greek ideal of perfection. And that has been good in some ways. And it's also been bad in other ways. Most of us have grown up in this culture. This is the air that we as Christians breathe. Now, in such a view of things, uh, which many of us were raised, this idea of perfection is understood as achieving and maintaining something, namely moral goodness, is what we usually try to maintain. Now, that's not all bad, right? That's good. In such a view, it is not without its merits. That idea of Greek perfection being holy, good, and true, that's good for us to remember. Obviously, integrity is important. Obviously, holiness is important. Obviously, purity is important. But such a concept of perfection also has this nasty underside. Because the truth is, none of us ever measure up, do we? We don't measure up. In the end, we all fall short. So what do you do with that? What do you do with the reality that you serve a perfect God knowing that you are living in this level of of imperfection? 
Worse still, and often, when perfection means measuring up, we find it hard to forgive ourselves. And we find it hard to forgive other people for not being God. We get really mad at ourselves. that We didn't do better this time. We should have done better this time. And when that happens, we often don't give ourselves or others permission to be human. The reality is, we are not perfect. So what happens? We carry around a lot of discouragement. We carry around a lot of guilt and a lot of lack of forgiveness because we don't know how to reconcile this. So despite all the positive things that might come from the Greek ideal of perfection, uh, we might well profit from incorporating into our lives a more Hebrew ideal, which is walking with God despite your imperfection. Proverbs says a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. What does that mean? You're going to fall, but your job is to get up. All on our own, you and I can never measure up in the Greek sense, but that is not what God is asking of us in this whole new life. What God is asking is that we bring our helplessness, our weaknesses, our imperfections, and our sin constantly to him, and that we walk with him, and that we don't hide it from him, that we're honest about the fact that we're broken and we need help. God is a good parent. He understands that we will make mistakes and disappoint him and ourselves. That's not permission to sin. That is a fact. Any parent in the room understands that dynamic of holding some space to recognize that you're probably going to mess up. Your kids are probably not always going to do the things that you want them to do. You create space for that. So what God asks is simply that we come home and that we share a life with him and that we let him help us in the ways in which we're powerless to help ourselves. Walk with God despite your flaws. Don't turn in the towel because you're not perfect. God knows. He's your father. He built it into the whole family equation. He loves you in spite of your sin. He calls you to a better way, obedience. But he also loves you in the process. Scene two. You ready? Scene two. Uh, the story of Eli and Samuel. The second scene about adoption here, uh, if you remember the story, I'll remind you, Hannah was unable to have children for uh, years. And so she asked God, she prayed and prayed and prayed. She asked God to give her a child. And in her deepest desperation, she promised God that if he gave her a son, she would dedicate that son to him. You've ever done that? Like, God, if you do this, man, I'm going to hook you up. Like, what a weird, like, it's like, yeah. You know, I think of the father and Natalie, like, yeah, what, I, whatever. You have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but God heard her prayer graciously. The father hears her prayer. Hannah becomes pregnant, and she has this son, and she names him Samuel. And just as she has promised, she dedicates Samuel to God, and she took him to live at the temple to be raised by Eli the priest. And so in sorts, Eli essentially adopted Samuel. Samuel was essentially adopted by Eli, and he was raised to be a prophet. Now, if you remember the story, Samuel went on to serve God in some amazing ways, as you read in the Old Testament. Uh, he was one of the he was an amazing prophet. And one of the most notable ways he was used was displayed when he anointed uh, David, the most unlikely candidate, as king of Israel. Uh, it was a beautiful story. Secondly, uh, the second lesson, in this new life, God gives you a purpose. He gives you a purpose. Psalm 57, verse 2, you can mark it for later. I'll read it to you. It says, I will cry to God most high, who performs on my behalf, and rewards me. And in the Amplified Bible, there's this, little, uh, there's this little space here that says, who brings to pass his purposes for me and surely completes them. 
you friends are fearfully and wonderfully made. I sat down for two hours with a couple this past week at a coffee shop who had recently been in a full-blown cult for the last seven years, not fully understanding the depths of depravity and confusion. And to sit across a table from a, a couple who is broken with children, fear for their life, all the things that you can imagine. Sincerely, their story was worse than any documentary you've seen or that is out on Netflix about cults. You listen to this story and you think, God, how can you have purpose for these people after this? How can you use this deep level of brokenness, psychological, physical, mental, spiritual torture for your glory? How can you do this? I see these two people who are just sharing their story and I, I begin to cry and I had to, like I had to pull myself together. Because what was going on was I saw their life and I had a hard time even as a pastor or a person who loves Jesus. I had a hard time. I was like, I don't see the future in this one. I don't see the purpose of their life or how you could form. And even in the middle of that conversation, the woman, the wife in that uh, particular couple and in the story says, I've actually had a sense for a long time that God wants me to use this story to help other people who are stuck and other people who are completely confused and other people who are completely lost in, in this situation which is happening all over the country. And so she already started writing. She already started writing this book and she's already started connecting with people and now that she has freedom from this cult, she's already helping other people out of this cult. And like this, she's only been out for two months. When you start walking with God, there is a purpose for you. Your story is rich. Do not deny your story. It's a beautiful one. Now, when it comes to purpose, um, we live in a time where dads have not necessarily been doing the best job. Would we agree? Some dads are amazing. Some dads have really not got the message that it's their job to be a dad. Now, whether you had a great dad or not, or whether you are a great dad or not, this, the point of my statement here is not to shame or make anyone feel bad. It's an observation of where our culture is at. We have dads that need to step in and help their kids, moms that need to step in and help their kids learn what their purpose is at a young age. Now, I just want to give a little tool to you parents in the room, or if you have kids, here's a little tool when your kids and as they're growing, just something that I know we, I was taught, but also just something that has been so helpful in my journey uh, as I've had to learn from other people who are older and wiser. Purpose matters. What your kids do with their lives and what you do with your life matters. And what I'm seeing more and more is a bunch of men that are around my age going, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. You had this conversation? Any spouses had that conversation with their husband? Uh, I'm going to go get another degree. Why? Well, it's probably a good idea. I should have another degree so I can do stuff. With an aimless, you're not necessarily focusing in any direction. Or I, I like my job, but I don't love it. I don't feel like I'm doing the thing I'm meant to do, right? Anybody understand what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I know you do because you'll talk to me about it afterwards. So just say it now so we can get out of the way. Uh, yes, we do. I grew up not very clear about where I was supposed to go. Now, in generations past, and I just want to speak to the men in the room for a minute. Sisters, is that okay? Gentlemen, ladies, listen in. You can critique anything I say. But, but gentlemen, I just want to say something to you really, really quickly. Uh, this seems to be a big problem for this generation of brothers that I talk to, friends of mine. Uh, in generations past, we would often just do what our dad did, right? If, you were a, if your dad was a farmer, you'd be a farmer. If he was a mechanic, you were a mechanic. You would usually get in the line of work that your father did. But as generations keep going, uh, we see that that has maybe changed or it has changed. And we've lost a little bit of our purpose. 
And if your father or mother were not intentional about helping you see where you were strong or where you were weak or where you were needing growth or whatever, uh, you end up seeing very quickly that you're kind of aimless. You're getting into life and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So for those of you who are still searching, or if you have little ones and you're wanting to raise them and kind of help them identify what are those things that uh, you are naturally good at, what is your purpose, you can do that now in your own life, but you can also do that with your kids. Let me just suggest a few really quick things. Uh, first, read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Learn that God has so many wonderful purposes for his people. All of the different stories in the Old and New Testament about how God uses people and gives them purpose and function. Your, your life here is not a waste. It's important. So read the scriptures. Second, surround yourself with wise counselors. Surround yourself with friends, with family who are wise and who are going to be honest with you. That are going to say, you know what? You actually aren't good at that. But you are good at this. Those are some of the most helpful conversations of your entire life. Third, pray for wisdom and discernment. God, what is it that you want me to do? What are you guiding me to? Help me discern who you've made me to be. Fourthly, <clears throat> pay attention to your passions. What do you like doing? God wasn't like, come into the family and do a role that you despise and hate, right? Like, sometimes we put ourselves in roles that God's like, I, I mean, you could do that, but if you want to do the thing you really like, you could do that too. Like, I'm open to both. I think you need to pay attention to your passions, and then fifthly, uh, embrace the raw material of your life. That essentially means be honest with yourself about who you really are. Some of you should never sing, ever. <laughs> Please don't do it, right? Some of you should never become salesmen. Don't do it. Some of you should never work with people. Don't do it, right? I don't know what your different bent is but the point is embrace who you really are not who you would hope to be or that culture says you should be or your idyllic version of your instagram self like don't live into that who are you really embrace the raw material of your life we're almost done third scene really quickly we have mordecai and esther if you don't remember the story uh, the book of esther doesn't offer a ton of information about esther's background but it does teach us that she had no parents, and she was raised by this older cousin, Mordecai. Now, uh, his subtle, strong presence throughout her story influenced her and influenced the outcome of an entire people group. And through Mordecai, her adopted brother slash father, uh, through his encouragement, Esther courageously, if you remember, revealed herself as, a Jewish, uh, as Jewish to the king of Persia, which was a really big deal. And she was given great favor and and specifically uh, as she obeyed God in that space. And it nearly saved the entire Jewish race. So the third thing, in this new life, you are given favor. When you're adopted into God's family, you now have favor on your life. The favor of God is what God can do for you that you cannot do for yourself. I don't know about you, but I want God's favor. I would love God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. His favor opens doors and opens opportunity in your life. It's his favor in your life that turns opposition into support. It's his favor that can help you land a promotion that you're wanting or make the list or seal the deal. I personally pray for favor, the favor of God more than anything else. I pray for my children. I've prayed it based on Luke 2.52. I've prayed it many, many times that they would grow in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. 
So how do we find this favor? First, well, we're in God's family. That's the first thing. And secondly, back to the other point, it's about obedience. It starts by surrendering our lives to Jesus. And God, as, he, as Jesus said, we, we have the favor of God. Jesus proclaimed this in his first, serve, uh, first sermon. Excuse me. Favor is a function of our surrender and our obedience. If we don't hold out on God, he doesn't hold out on us. He gives you favor. Fourthly, fourth scene, Joseph and Jesus. Now, I often don't think of it, but Joseph was actually Jesus' adopted father. Joseph's fiance, or Mary, Joseph's fiance, was pregnant, but not with his son. It was the son of God. So Joseph could have backed out of the whole situation. He could have let Mary raise him alone, but instead he chose to raise Jesus as his own son. And as we know, the impact Jesus had on the course of history is infinitely greater and better than anything that we can even articulate in this space. His adoptive dad, Joseph, is a small piece of his story, but an essential piece of how Jesus came into the world. And Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. It means presence. Fourthly, in this new life, you're given God's presence. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're not alone. His presence is with you. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. God's presence brings security. It brings joy. It brings lightness. God's presence essentially means and brings peace. Regardless of your circumstances, he is always with you. Remember the, the story of Moses that I mentioned earlier. Uh, as he grew and God used him, uh, we know that story. When God revealed his plan to Moses, this person who was rescued radically by Pharaoh's daughter, uh, Moses actually objected. He was like, I'm out. I don't want this story. If you remember, he detailed this litany of excuses ranging from his lack of credentials to his stuttering problem. And he summarized his insecurities by simply saying, who am I? But that, that was the wrong question, obviously. It's not about who you are. It's about whose you are. And I love what God said. He said, I am who I am. God answers his question by revealing his name and, all, and also offers the reassurance that I will be with you. Presence. He, he comes up to this major, major problem and God says, I'll be with you. And that's all we need to know in many times, isn't it? That God's for us. Who can be against us? Now, in closing, uh, in the passage we're studying today, verse 7 has a key for us, for you and I as we close. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, just verse 7 says this, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Uh, the term heir in God's, uh, heirs of God emphasizes our relationship to God the Father as his children. And that means we have an inheritance that doesn't spoil or perish or, or fade. These are biblical words. And the Greek uh, term translated heirs refers to those who receive their allotted possession by the right of sonship. Meaning you have an inheritance. In other words, because God has made us his children, we have the full rights to God's kingdom. We're his beneficiaries. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're welcomed into God's family. We're accepted. We're loved. And all that belongs to Jesus, we get to be co-heirs with him. It belongs to us. This last illustration is silly, but it really does fit perfectly. Uh, do you remember that classic movie, Annie? Uh, 
I know it's silly, but Annie contains a wonderful illustration of becoming an heir of God. Uh, when Annie moves from the orphanage to a mansion, it's obviously, no kidding, like an incredible change for her. She leaves behind a spiteful, alcoholic caretaker, and then she enters into a relationship with a caring father. She goes from having no possessions to having a fortune at her disposal. Seen from a Christian perspective, Annie pictures, in many ways, what it means to be co-heirs with Christ. From death to life, from rags to riches. By trusting Jesus, you are now welcomed into a whole new life. You have a whole new start. No matter how much sin and debt you have accumulated, it is canceled. It is paid in full. I want to end us with one verse, uh, Isaiah 46. God's consistent with you throughout your whole life. Not just right now when it's convenient, but throughout your whole life. And Isaiah 46, 4, just, I love this. And actually the other night, uh, Scarlett was the one reading, and she actually gave me this verse. She's like, Dad, check out this verse. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's for me. It was great. And the first line is, even to your old age and gray hairs. And I like to replace that, or no hairs, because all of us have different problems. Some of our hair grays, some of it goes away. Wherever you're at, whatever version of old is for you, even when you get older, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. And this is the part I want to point out. First he says, I have made you. And I will carry you. I will sustain you. I will rescue you. Friends, he made you, which means he knows what you need. He knows what you're lacking right now. He can be trusted with, with your greatest fear and your and your deepest hope. He says he'll carry us. Where do you need help shouldering the load of life right now? He wants to carry you. He will do that. He will sustain you. He's going to give you the energy that you need to keep going today and keep going tomorrow. And if you so need it, he will rescue you. He is our father. He cares deeply. We are grafted into his family. And we can either have a spirit of slavery or we can have a spirit of adoption. The choice is ours, but may I just encourage you that God's love for you is abounding. It's so rich. He wants to invite you into this gracious, spirit-filled, beautiful life for your flourishing, for your good. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. This is a good moment for us to, uh, if it's helpful, to put down your, your things and to uh, just pay attention. We're just going to have a moment of response today, a moment to respond to what the Spirit might be doing in you and also what He might be doing in this space. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come right now. We don't pressure you. We don't uh, try to manipulate you into this space. We just ask that you would come. And if you want to speak to us, that you do it. If you want to move in, in our situation in our life, would you do it? If you want to bring something to our attention, would you do it right now? And would you just make us aware of how being in your family affects us as a church and also us individually? So as we move into this response time, the response time of uh, taking the bread, the cup, as we move to the moment of generosity, as we sing, as we just respond to your Spirit's leading, I ask that you would guide our thoughts, that you would guide our words, that uh, you would give us boldness to pray, boldness to receive prayer, that God, you would do what only you can do in us and through us. And so would you bless this time as we sing and as we take the bread and cup. 
during this next section, during this next song, uh, there's a spot right in the back and a spot right up front for a communion. Please grab the bread and the cup. Go back to your seat. We'll take that together in just a few minutes. Uh, there'll be a time of generosity and singing. But right now, the tables are open. Let's sing. Let's grab the bread and cup. <laughs>